name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We go on now to the Sacrament of Penance. Question 281. What is the Sacrament of Penance? Penance is a sacrament whereby the sins, whether mortal or venial, which we have committed after baptism, are forgiven. This sacrament has different names. It's sometimes called the Sacrament of Reconciliation. The old name for it was simply Confession. But it's all the same thing. And I suppose it's our Lord's favorite sacrament. That's to say, if our Lord had been allowed to leave with us, apart from baptism, only one sacrament, I think certainly he'd have chosen this sacrament. Because he came into the world for sinners. That's why he came here. And it was the great joy of his heart when he was on earth to be able to forgive sin. That woman who came and wept on his feet and wiped her tears away with her hair and he said to her, Your sins have forgiven you. What a joy to his heart. He loved the company of sinners. I remember during the war I was in the camp and we had a wonderful priest with us. And he used to know all the, all the rogues in the camp. And these people who were up to their eyes in every sort of skullduggery, they were all friendly with him. And I used to think to myself, that's just how our Lord was. Sinners came to our Lord because they just felt attracted to him because they knew that he'd come to this world for them, that he loved them that he wanted them to give up their bad ways in order to be holy. Well, since our Lord came into this world for sinners, it's to be expected that he leave in his church some way of coping with sin. And that's what he has done. Baptism forgives all sin, but we're weak, we go on sinning, and so he left us this sacrament of confession. Does the sacrament of penance increase the grace of God in the soul? Yes, the sacrament of penance increases the grace of God in the soul besides forgiving sin. We should therefore often go to confession. The special sacramental grace of confession is increased delicacy of conscience, greater supernatural hatred of sin. It does much more than merely forgive us our sins. And so it's a good thing, even if you can't think of any special sin, just to go to confession for the sake of the sacramental grace that you get. When did our Lord institute the sacrament of penance? Our Lord instituted the sacrament of penance when he breathed on his apostles and gave them power to forgive sins, saying, Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. He went on to say, you remember, and whose sins you retain, they are retained. Well, if the apostles have got to forgive some sins and not forgive others, they've got to make a judgment. And how can they make a proper judgment if they're not acquainted with the facts? And so in these words whereby our Lord instituted confession, the sacrament of penance, he also instituted it in the way in which we have it now, namely, the priest needs to hear our sins and then forgive us our sins or maybe not forgive them. For instance, if a man goes to confession and says that uh, he had a bit of a row with his wife, well, if the man said, oh no, we're not talking to each other, we haven't spoken to each other for a fortnight, the priest would say to him, look, this is very serious. 
unless you're prepared to be humble and go home and try to make it up with your wife. How can I give you absolution? Because you're not really sorry for these sins. It's a great help confession because it helps us to be honest. And so the priest needs to hear what we've done. And just in this matter of going to confession, it's of great psychological value. I knew a woman, her husband, he was a psychiatrist, and he said that if every religion had confession, psychiatrists would be out of a job. Well, they wouldn't be, I suppose, because I suppose there are mental sicknesses that need psychiatrists, but nevertheless, confession is a marvellous help to a person, because sin, it does sort of twist the soul, and confession, relieving one's soul of this secret, it, it's a great help in, in relieving strain, quite apart from the sacramental help. How does the priest forgive sins? The priest forgives sins by the power of God when he pronounces the words of absolution. What are the words of absolution? The words of absolution are, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And I suppose those words are the sweetest words you can hear in any language. To hear those words of absolution and the grace that God gives with them. Are any conditions of forgiveness required on the part of the penitent? Three conditions for forgiveness are required on the part of the penitent. Contrition, confession and satisfaction. Contrition meaning sorrow for sin. Confession when I tell my sins. Satisfaction when I do the penance the priest gives me. What is contrition? Contrition is a hearty sorrow for our sins because by them we've offended so good a God together with a firm purpose of amendment. What's a firm purpose of amendment? A firm purpose of amendment is a resolution to avoid, by the grace of God, not only sin, but also the dangerous occasions of sin. Like if a fellow has gotten into the habit of getting drunk every Saturday because he goes out with a group of people. And this happens again and again and again. If he's resolved sincerely to try to avoid that sin, he'll have to avoid their company. Like Matt Talbot, they're trying to get him canonized. But he was a complete drunkard once. And then he decided he was going to change his life. Well, when he came home from work, he used to pass a few pubs. Well, the trouble was he didn't pass them. And so he started going home a different way, a much longer way, but so that he wouldn't have to pass these pubs into which he'd gone too often. That's, he had a real firm purpose of amendment. He avoided the dangerous occasions of sin. And really, the quality of our contrition, the quality of our sorrow for sin, can be measured by the quality of our purpose of amendment. Am I really serious in resolving to finish with sin? And if I'm serious, what steps am I going to take to try to help me from falling into that sin again. How may we obtain a hearty sorrow for our sins? We may obtain a hearty sorrow for our sins by earnestly praying for it and by making use of such considerations as may lead us to it. Obviously, sorrow for sin is supernatural. It has to be God who gives it to us and so we have to ask Him for it. What consideration concerning God will lead us to sorrow for our sins? 
This consideration concerning God will lead us to sorrow for our sins, that by our sins we have offended God, who is infinitely good in himself and infinitely good to us. What consideration concerning our Saviour will lead us to sorrow for our sins? This consideration concerning our Saviour will lead us to sorrow for our sins, that our Saviour died for our sins, and that those who sin grievously crucify again to themselves the Son of God, making him a mockery. In sorrow for our sins, because by them we've lost heaven and deserved hell, sufficient when we go to confession. Yes, sorrow for our sins, because by them we've lost heaven and deserved hell, is sufficient when we go to confession. If you'd like to turn now to page 67 in your catechism, there's a very nice act of contrition. I'll read it out. O oh my God, I'm sorry and beg pardon for all my sins and detest them above all things because they deserve your dreadful punishments, because they've crucified my loving Saviour, Jesus Christ, and most of all, because they offend your infinite goodness. And I firmly resolve by the help of your grace never to offend you again and carefully to avoid the occasions of sin. That's an act of contrition which covers these three motives we've just considered. Question 293. What is perfect contrition? Perfect contrition is sorrow for sin arising purely from the love of God. What special value has perfect contrition? Perfect contrition has this special value, that by it our sins are forgiven immediately, even before we confess them. But nevertheless, if they are serious, we are strictly bound to confess them afterwards. I mentioned earlier how important it is if you're with a person who's dying to help them make an act of perfect contrition. If you turn again now to page 66, at the bottom of the page there's a little prayer which is an act of perfect contrition, which really you ought to say every day in your prayers. Oh my God, because you are so good, I'm very sorry that I've sinned against you, and by the help of your grace, I will not sin again. Now that prayer, any good Muslim or Jew could say, you don't have to be a Christian to say that prayer, and it's a little prayer, but it will get anybody into heaven. You might say, if perfect contrition forgives all sin, why bother to go to confession? Well, as I say, there's a sacramental grace you get when you go to confession that you won't get any other way. And just like all our life long, we need to grow in the love of God, and so we keep going to communion. So all our life long, we need to grow in our hatred for sin, and that's why we keep going to confession. Love of God and hatred for sin are co-relatives, like the inside and the outside of a glass. And the saints, while they love God more than we do, they certainly hated sin more than we do. And just like you go to communion because you don't love God enough, or you go to the fire because you want to get warm, so you go to confession in order to have a more realistic attitude to sin. Question 295. What is confession? Confession is to accuse ourselves of our sins to a priest approved by the bishop. What if a person willfully conceal a serious sin in confession? If a person willfully conceal a serious sin in confession, he's guilty of a great sacrilege by telling a lie to the Holy Spirit in making a bad confession. So 
So we have to try to be honest. How many things have we to do in order to prepare for confession? We have four things to do in order to prepare for confession. First, we must heartily pray for grace to make a good confession. Secondly, we must carefully examine our conscience. Thirdly, we must take time and care to make a good act of contrition. And fourthly, we must resolve by the help of God to renounce our sins and to begin a new life for the future. What is satisfaction? Satisfaction is doing the penance given us by the priest. Does the penance given by the priest always make full satisfaction for our sins? The penance given by the priest does not always make full satisfaction for our sins. We should therefore add to it other good works and penances and try to gain indulgences. What's an indulgence? An indulgence is a remission granted by the Church of the temporal punishment which often remains due to sin after its guilt has been forgiven. I think I spoke about the boy kicking a football around. I'll bring him up again now. He's kicking this ball around, and the father says, You stop kicking that ball around, you'll break a window. The boy goes on doing it. He breaks the window. The father's very angry. And the boy's very sorry, and begs forgiveness. And the father says, All right, that's all right. I forgive you. But no pocket money for six weeks till you pay for the window. Well, the boy starts being really good in the home, and helping his mother, and washing up, and doing all sorts of things. And so after four weeks, she says to her boy, You've been really good. These two weeks now, I'll give it you out of the housekeeping money. And then your father will start giving you your pocket money as usual. Well, when the father forgives the boy his sin, the guilt is forgiven. But there's going to be no pocket money for six weeks. That's a temporal punishment which remains due to sin after the guilt has been forgiven. And then if the mother says for the last two weeks, well, I'll give you your pocket money, that's a remission granted by the mother of the temporal punishment due to sin after its guilt had been forgiven. Well, push that onto the supernatural level and you have a mother of the church forgiving us part of the punishment due to our sins after God's forgiven the guilt. And she's able to do this because God has said to her, what you bind on earth or loose on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven. Well, I still haven't really said what we have to mention in confession. If we are sure that a thing's a serious sin, we must mention that. If we are doubtful, good to ask advice of the priest, but we can mention anything we like, even past sins that have already been forgiven. But do try to have a love for confession. Luther, at the end of his life, he admitted that by doing away with confession, he kicked away the bottom rung in the ladder of salvation. If you make a firm resolution, if you become a Catholic, of going to confession at least monthly, that's a wonderful safeguard against falling away from God. We've now come to the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, question 301. This sacrament used to be called the sacrament of extreme unction. Extreme unction just being sort of anglicized form of the Latin, meaning last anointing. But extreme unction, it sounded so final, as though the man came just ahead of the, of the undertaker. 
that people started putting off getting this sacrament or applying for it until they were more or less dead. And so at Vatican II, at the last council of the church, they gave this other name for it. You can still call it extreme unction, but there's this other name which we use now, which is much better, anointing of the sick, because it's meant to be received not when a person's just about to die, but when they're ill, when they're seriously ill, or when they're going to have a serious operation, or even if they're old. I mean, old age qualifies a person to receive this sacrament. What is the sacrament of the anointing of the sick? This sacrament is the anointing of the sick with holy oil accompanied with prayer. When is the sacrament of the anointing of the sick given? The sacrament of the anointing of the sick is given when we are in danger of death by sickness. Well, we were told in a seminary, I remember, that if a person is very old, that entitles them to, to, to receive this sacrament. It's, it's not a thing to be stingy about. I mean, God gives the sacraments to be used, and so people should be very happy to get it. What are the effects of the sacrament of the anointing of the sick? The effects of the sacrament of the anointing of the sick are to comfort and strengthen the soul, to remit sin, and even to restore health when God sees it to be expedient. God gives us the sacraments to, an, to enable us to cope in a profitable Christian way with every situation in life. Adolescence, marriage, everything. And dying, of course, is the most important thing we do. And we ought to die in a really positive way, with great love for God in our heart, great desire to unite all that we suffer with the sufferings of our Lord in His Passion. And this is the sacrament that helps us to profit from great sickness and to die in, in this Christian way. What authority is there in Scripture for the sacrament of the anointing of the sick? The authority in Scripture for the sacrament of the anointing of the sick is in the fifth chapter of St. James where it said, Is any man sick among you? Let him bring in the priests of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick man, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he be in sins, they shall be forgiven him. Well, sometimes it's a fact that there's physical improvement and recovery even after this anointing. I suppose the body and soul are so tied together somehow that if there's great reinforcement and health given to the soul, the effect is felt in the body. Now, when does a person actually die? Doctors can make mistakes. They can say a person's dead and the person hasn't actually really died yet. And I remember we were told in the seminary that only dissolution, when the body starts corrupting, then you know the soul has left the body. And so if a person seems to have died, even so, send for the priest and the priest will anoint the person. Even though the, the person is cold and stiff, it's good to get the priest to anoint him. Why? It has the effect, supposing a person has been turned away in his heart from God, and he can't talk or anything, he can't move, obviously he can't go to confession. But if he's anointed, and if in some way he starts turning towards God, and wants to come back to God, then this sacrament will have the effect of, of remitting his sins. 
This is a sacrament really that everyone should receive before they die. And if a priest allowed a man through his own fault to die without receiving this sacrament, it would be very much on their priest's conscience. So one should always try to make sure that, that no one's allowed to die without having received this sacrament. If they recover and if they get ill again later, why they can receive it again, of course. Next question. What's the sacrament of holy order? Holy order is a sacrament by which bishops, priests and other ministers of the church are ordained and receive power and grace to perform their sacred duties. Our Lord at the Last Supper took the bread and wine and said, This is my body, this is my blood. Then he said to his apostles, Do this in memory of me. That's when he gave them the sacrament of orders. And they have passed it on. And it's been passed on right down to our day and it'll go on to the end of the world. Mind you, for hearing confessions, a priest always has to get faculties from the bishop of his area. I mean, if I went to France, I couldn't just start hearing confessions. I'd have to apply to the bishop for faculties. And then he'd give them to me. I suppose they do that because a priest sort of goes off in some way. A bishop might decide to withhold his faculties. The power to say Mass, a priest always has it. Even though he may be disobeying a bishop by saying Mass, he always has the power to say Mass once he's ordained. But the power to give absolution, uh, this depends on the good pleasure of the bishop who gives him these faculties. I think we apply every five years now. It used to be every three years. Well, at the Reformation, the churches of the Reformation did drop this sacrament of orders. They said there's no difference between the priest and the layman. They ordain their ministers to preach. That's why ecumenism means one thing in Yugoslavia or Greece, say, where they've kept the sacrament of orders, and quite another thing in Germany or Britain. Uh, Anglican orders of themselves, they're valid Anglican orders, but they're not valid Catholic orders. That's to say, the priests can't bring about that the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. The Anglican communion service is something very devotional. And what's more, Everybody who's there at the Anglican Communion Service is there because he wants to be there. He's a committed Christian. Well, at our dear Catholic Masses, the number of people there perhaps who are only there because it's a mortal sin to miss Mass. There's a different atmosphere, and the Anglican atmosphere is very devout. Though, of course, in our one there's a reverence because we realize that the presence of the, of the divinity of Christ our Lord. But there is that difference uh, between ecumenism according to what country you're talking about. So this sacrament of orders is the most precious thing that God's left in the world. And a priest may be good or bad, but what he gives out is the sacraments. And the Holy Eucharist that a priest consecrates, doesn't matter how he says Mass, but if he says Mass, then what he gives you in communion is the body and blood of Christ. 
And when you go to confession, well, he may help you or he may not help you. But if, you, if he gives you absolution, then you've got your sins forgiven. And so it's a good thing to have a great love and reverence for the priesthood. It all started off in the upper room at the Last Supper, and it'll stay in this world right till the last day of the world. What's the sacrament of matrimony? As I said, God wants us to be holy and grow in holiness all our lives. The great mass of the human race are called to sanctity in marriage. And God's given a special sacrament for this. And the sacramental grace of matrimony, I suppose, is that it enables people to have the constancy and the humility and the patience all the virtues that people need for married life. And really, I've often seen homes and I've thought to myself that it's obvious they're getting great benefit from this sacrament because they're so holy and they have such crosses to carry and they carry them so cheerfully. This sacrament of matrimony is a lovely thing and I suppose one reason why there's so many marriages breaking up nowadays is that a lot of people don't bother to get the sacrament. They just get married and raise yourself and start living together. And these things can't last. Marriage is a very hard thing. And we certainly need the sacrament for it. What is the sacrament of matrimony? Matrimony is a sacrament which sanctifies the contract of a Christian marriage and gives a special grace to those who receive it worthily. What special grace does the sacrament of matrimony give to those who receive it worthily? The sacrament of matrimony gives to those who receive it worthily a special grace to enable them to bear the difficulties of their state, to love and be faithful to one another, and to bring up their children in the fear of God. Is it a sacrilege to contract marriage in serious sin or in disobedience to the laws of the Church? It is sacrilege to contract marriage in serious sin or in disobedience to the laws of the Church. And instead of a blessing, the guilty parties draw upon themselves the anger of God. If people want to get married, well, you have to go to a priest and he checks up on your baptism certificates and makes sure you're free to marry. All the red tape with which the Catholic Church surrounds marriage. We don't do it for the fun of it. It's an awful lot of hard work writing letters and everything. We do it to safeguard monogamy. To stop a man having one wife in Australia, say, coming to England and getting another wife here. The priest doing the marriage has to check up with the church where the church is where the two parties were baptized and get a note from the present parish priest there saying yes this person was baptized a Catholic and according to the entry in our register he's still free to marry and then after the marriage he has to write back to these same priests saying so and so baptizing your church in such and such a date is now married to such and such a person and like that it blocks any other any other marriage unless one of them dies, of course. What is a mixed marriage? A mixed marriage is a marriage in which only one partner is a Catholic. Does the Church encourage mixed marriages? The Church doesn't encourage mixed marriages and considers them dangerous. Does the Church sometimes permit mixed marriages? The Church sometimes permits mixed marriages by granting a dispensation and other special conditions. Why does the Church discourage mixed marriages? Well, I think her experience is a long experience and it's not so easy for the children of a mixed marriage to mature in the faith. 
they need example from father and mother. However, some of the mixed marriages I've known have turned out wonderfully well and the children are really devout, but that is the general experience of the church. A woman said to me once, she said, she was a Catholic, her husband wasn't a Catholic, she said, my husband is the finest man I've ever known in my life, but I'd never re recommend anyone to marry a non-Catholic. She said that because she said there was great loneliness sometimes in her life. And she knew that she needed a comfort and a help from her husband, which she couldn't get because he didn't share her faith. What does the Catholic partner of a mixed marriage promise? The Catholic partner of a mixed marriage promises to do everything possible to preserve the faith and have all the children of the marriage baptized and brought up in the Catholic religion. Can any human power dissolve the bond of marriage? No human power can dissolve the bond of marriage because Christ has said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. I'll just say something about divorce now, because people say, well, why doesn't the church allow it? I mean, if they're just not getting on well together. The answer is the church can't allow it. Look at it like this. In Mass, you have bread and wine. The priest takes them, and by his words, and by his intention, but by the power of God, of course, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. After consecration, he can't change the body and blood of Christ back into bread and wine. The Pope can't do it. The sacrament has taken place. The sacramental change has taken place, and that's it. No power on earth can change the consecrated species. The word species means appearances. It's a Latin word, I suppose. No power on earth can change the consecrated species back into bread and wine. Now, when we're baptized, we become living cells in the body of Christ, so to speak. When two such living cells come together in marriage, in Christian marriage, and the marriage is blessed, and the marriage is consummated, a sacramental change takes place. They become one in Christ. This is brought about by their words, by their intentions, and by what they do, but of course really by the power of God, whom God has joined together. And so, once the sacramental change has taken place, once they've been made one in Christ, no power on earth can make them separate again, Okay, the marriage can break up, they can have a legal divorce. Sometimes that's advisable if the husband maybe is, is corrupting the other children. The, the wife may be better advised to apply for a separation and even have a civil divorce to keep the money side of it safe. But even so, she and her husband are still sacramentally united in this bond of marriage. So it's not that the church is just being a bit difficult or awkward. The church just has not got the power to uh, undo that sacramental bond. Well, this next chapter, I'm going to skip, I'm afraid. It's uh, nice to read over slowly, and there's loads of scripture references at the bottom, and you can check those up for yourselves, but you can do that for yourself if you don't mind. So let's go straight through now to question 333, the Christian's rule of life. And these last two chapters, I think, are the nicest ones in the Catechism. 
What rule of life must we follow if we hope to be saved? If we hope to be saved, we must follow the rule of life taught by Jesus Christ. What are we bound to do by the rule of life taught by Jesus Christ? By the rule of life taught by Jesus Christ, we're bound always to hate sin and to love God. How must we hate sin? We must hate sin above all other evils, so as to be resolved never to commit a willful sin for the love or fear of anything whatsoever. How must we love God? We must love God above all things and with our whole heart. Now, this is a matter of the will, not of feelings. If a person is threatened with death, if they don't deny their faith, they may fear death, but nevertheless, if they choose to keep close to God, this is what counts. I remember once, I, I used to have a great love of apple pie, and uh, I thought to myself one day, which do I love most, God or apple pie? Well, with our will, we must just choose always to love God most, and our feelings can draw us one way or the other, but it's with our will that we walk towards God or walk away from Him. And so this hatred of sin and this love of God, maybe we can't always control our feelings, but our choices, what we actually make ourselves do, these must, must always be in the right direction. And it's a good thing to pray for feelings as well, of course. The prayer that we say after Holy Communion, Behold, O kind and most sweet Jesus. I always say it in Latin, but it's, there's a part where we ask for strong feelings of faith, hope and charity. These feelings are a great help, and so it's good to ask God for them. Next question. How must we learn to love God? We must learn to love God by begging of God to teach us to love Him. O oh my God, teach me to love You. And when I'm talking to people who aren't Christians at all, and who don't pray, this is a little prayer I recommend them to say. I say, you can't do any harm by every day saying, Dear God, teach me to love you. What will the love of God lead us to do? The love of God will lead us often to think how good God is, often to speak to Him in our hearts, and always to seek to please Him. The love of God should lead us to want to do things for Him. I think I'll come on to that later on, but being a servant of God is not simply a matter of saying one's prayers and trying to avoid sin. A good child does much more than merely avoid displeasing its mother. It tries to do things for her. Does Jesus Christ also command us to love one another? Jesus Christ also commands us to love one another, that is, all persons without exception, for his sake. Religion has a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Vertical, leading us to the love of God. Horizontal, embracing all men in our love. One without the other. It's, 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 not, it's not right. A cross has the cross beam and the upright beam. You have to have both. And if a person simply loved God but didn't bother about his neighbor, his religion would be humbug. And if a person simply loved his neighbor but didn't love God, well, it wouldn't be religion.
We have to have both. How are we to love one another? We are to love one another by wishing well to one another and praying for one another and by never allowing ourselves any thought, word or deed to the injury of anyone. And the really holy people that you meet, they are people who really put this into practice. When you never hear them speaking ill of anyone, when they're kind to everyone, that's the sort of person we ought to want to be. Are we also bound to love our enemies? We're also bound to love our enemies, not only by forgiving them from our hearts, but also by wishing them well and praying for them. Praying for them, that is, that they may turn to God and come to salvation and and come to that union with God that he wants them to have. Because we can be quite certain of this, that God loves everyone, everyone without exception. He died for them all, and he wants them to be with him in heaven. And so if he has such a love for them, we also should love them and, and, and pray for them. Has Jesus Christ given us another great rule? Jesus Christ has given us another great rule in these words. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How are we to deny ourselves? We are to deny ourselves by giving up our own will and by going against our own humours, inclinations and passions. Our own humours, I suppose that's an old English word meaning feelings. Why are we bound to deny ourselves? We're bound to deny ourselves because our natural inclinations are prone to evil from our very childhood, and if not corrected by self-denial, they will certainly carry us to hell. Now, there's great wisdom in that. We have to try to go against our natural inclinations, and indeed, if people don't, they can get psychologically sick. We're never meant to lead sort of relaxed lives following every little whim, we're meant to lead lives with a certain sort of tension when we're trying to keep ourselves in control. How are we to take up our cross daily? We're to take up our cross daily by submitting daily with patience to the labors and sufferings of this short life and by bearing them willingly for the love of God. Now God has our sanctification very much at heart and he doesn't fail to provide us with the crosses we need. It could be just the weather, or ill health. Or we ourselves may, for other people, we may be a cross to them, and they may be a cross to us. But if we don't realize that God is on our side, that all the time he's wanting us to be holy, then life just gets too mysterious, things are inexplicable. If we realize that God's always working for our salvation and sanctification, then everything has meaning. I met a woman in hospital. She had a broken ankle. It was in the winter. She'd been letting herself into her house, and there was ice on the doorstep. She put the key in the door, and as she did it, she slipped and fell down and broke her ankle. She told me that between the time of her feet leaving the ground and herself landing on the ground and breaking her ankle, she said to herself, Why is God doing this to me? Well, I think that's a very Christian sort of attitude. There was a woman in the ward, actually, who was a lapsed Catholic. I think she was able to help her, and I suppose maybe that was part of the reason. But if we get our crosses, it's because God sees that we need them. Simon of Cyrene didn't really welcome that cross. It was most inopportune and, and humiliating, and yet for him it was his salvation. 
and so it is with us. When God gives us the cross, it comes from his love, and often for a person, as it was with Simon of Cyrene, it's the only opportunity they'll get of coming to, to intimacy with our Lord, coming to know him really well. How are we to follow our blessed Lord? We're to follow our blessed Lord by walking in his footsteps and imitating his virtues. What are the principal virtues we're to learn of our blessed Lord? The principal virtues we're to learn of our blessed Lord are meekness, humility and obedience. Which are the enemies we must fight against all the days of our life? The enemies which we must fight against all the days of our life are the devil, the world and the flesh. What do you mean by the devil? By the devil I mean Satan and all his wicked angels who are ever seeking to draw us into sin that we may be damned with them. What do you mean by the world? By the world I mean the false maxims of the world and the society of those who love the vanities, riches and pleasures of this world better than God. Why do you number the devil and the world among the enemies of your soul? I number the devil and the world among the enemies of the soul because they are always seeking by temptation and by word or example to carry us along with them in the broad road that leads to damnation. What do you mean by the flesh? By the flesh I mean our own corrupt inclinations and passions, which are the most dangerous of all our enemies. You know, you have to think about these things. They're quite true. What must we do to hinder the enemies of our soul from drawing us into sin? To hinder the enemies of our soul from drawing us into sin, we must watch, pray and fight against all their suggestions and temptations. In the warfare against the devil, the world and the flesh, on whom must we depend? In the warfare against the devil, the world and the flesh, we must depend not on ourselves but on God only. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. We now start the last chapter, the Christian's Daily Exercise. Number 355 How should you begin the day? I should begin the day by making the sign of the cross as soon as I awake in the morning and by saying some short prayer such as, O oh my God, I offer my heart and soul to you. What I'd recommend is that as you get out of bed, before you actually stand on your feet, you go straight onto your knees. And before you talk to any creature, you just talk to the Creator. And because perhaps you're bad at waking up, it may be a bit incoherent and confused, but God won't mind. It's very good to make quite sure that at the very beginning of each day, you offer your day to God. On the last page of the Catechism, there's quite a nice little morning offering. And if you just said this, it'd be grand. It says, O Jesus, through the most pure heart of Mary, I offer you the prayers, works, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your divine heart. It's good to start off the day in a positive way like that, offering it to God. How should you rise in the morning? I should rise in the morning diligently, dress myself modestly, and then kneel down and say my morning prayers. Should you also hear Mass if you have time and opportunity? I should also hear Mass if I have time and opportunity, for to hear Mass is by far the best and most profitable of all devotions. And I tell people that if they become Catholics and don't get to daily Mass, it's like getting some marvellous car and never discovering how to get beyond second gear. Well, to be in a, in a, in a gorgeous car and to go along in second gear must be quite nice. But until you get into top, 
into top gear, you don't really know what a wonderful car you've got. And for a Catholic, if a person becomes a Catholic and just goes to Sunday Mass, really, they're not getting their money's worth. Mind you, that's better than, than not becoming a Catholic. But nevertheless, to enjoy your religion, you need to go at it pretty hard. I suppose the reason is this, that the heart of our religion is love of Jesus. And in matters of love, well, you know, there's all the difference in the world between a, a fellow just sort of knowing a girl to say good morning and being completely in love with her. When he's completely in love with her and his love's returned, life becomes quite a different thing. And so it is with our Lord, if we just sort of on good terms with nothing terribly close, well, it's great, but if he becomes the main thing in our lives, then that's something quite different. And for that to come about, I think a person needs to get to daily mass. Mind you, some people can't. Some of my students simply can't. But some of them can. They find that by going to a midday mass or evening mass, they can get it in somehow. But if you just physically can't get to daily mass, well, God's graces are not tied to the sacraments. And he can certainly make up in other ways. But if you possibly can, then you should try to do that. Is it useful to make daily meditation? It is useful to make daily meditation, for such was the practice of all the saints. On what ought we to meditate? We ought to meditate especially on the last four things, that is, death, judgment, heaven and hell, and on the life and passion of our blessed Lord. And, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to put a commercial in here for the rosary. The rosary provides us with a good daily meditation, a balanced spiritual diet. We have to pray, not just for two minutes a day, but for longer. If a person only slept for two hours a night, better than nothing, but it's not enough really to keep him going. If a person only prays for two minutes a day, better than nothing, but not enough. We should pray for 10 or 15 minutes anyhow. And not just pray, we have to pray about the right things. A person can eat a lot, but nevertheless they can die of malnutrition if they don't eat the right things. In, in the prison camps in the Far East during the war, we didn't get any, any vitamin B or very little, because the rice we got was polished rice. And there were people dying of beriberi. Which, is, which comes from a vitamin B deficiency. And so although they might have, you know, a reasonable amount to eat every day, if they were not getting vitamin B, they could die. And in our prayer life, if we're not praying about the right things, we may seem to spend quite a bit of time in prayer. But even so, we, can't, we can be not getting enough. Like a little boy, one of our legionaries was preparing for his first Holy Communion, little boy of seven. And she said to him, Do you pray? And he said, Yes. And she said, What do you pray about? And he said, I pray that Daddy wins the pools, the football pools, you know. Well, you could pray about that all day long. It wouldn't get you anywhere, really. It wouldn't help you grow in the love of God. We have to pray about God, about our blessed Lord, about all he's done for us, about how much he's suffered for us, 
we have to pray about the heaven he has prepared for us. If we die without having a great longing to go to heaven, that's something we shall have to acquire in purgatory. We should pray about heaven. When we were prisoners in the Far East, we used to talk about home, we used to think about home, we used to dream about home. It was the hope of getting home that kept some people going. And in this life, if we Christians don't think about heaven and long to go to heaven, it's a bit funny when God's got it all waiting for us and has spent so much time and trouble enabling us to go there. We should think about heaven. If you say your rosary every day, you will. And the rosary gives you a decent, balanced diet. It makes you think about a spiritual diet that is sufficient. It makes you think about the things you ought to think about. And it makes you pray for a reasonable amount of time. A person could say, well, I'd rather say one decade, the Our Father, the Ten Hail Marys, and the Glory Be, we call that a decade. The Latin word for ten is decem. A person might say, I prefer to say one decade devoutly than gabble my way through a whole rosary. That shows a misunderstanding. The Hail Marys, they're just a simple timing device. They limit the meditation to two or three minutes. To say the Our Father once, and the Hail Mary ten times, and the Glory Be once, takes two or three minutes. You haven't been saying the rosary for long before it becomes completely automatic. And the Hail Marys are a sort of background music to your thoughts. And what are you thinking of? Well, the Annunciation, say. That's the first mystery that we think about. The Annunciation, and you think of Mary's heart, which always said yes to God. And Mary's acceptance of God's will, which was the means needed for our salvation. And then you look into your own heart and see how often you've said no to God and have resisted God's holy will. And just for two or three minutes to compare Mary's immaculate heart and your heart, that makes a very good prayer. And you're humbly asking God to make your heart more like the heart of Mary. Or the next mystery we think of, the visitation when Our Lady went to visit St. Elizabeth. You can think of her charity and ask that you may be more charitable. Or you can think of her awareness of the child she carried beneath her heart. And you can pray that you may be more aware of the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity. Or you can think of Jesus being formed by the Holy Spirit in her womb. And really that's a picture of our life on earth. Because in an intimate sort of dependence on Mary, we're being formed by the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Christ. And so you could meditate on, on that interior life that you're leading. And the next mystery is the birth of Jesus. And you can think of how Our Lady in St. Joseph realized when they saw this wonderful baby that their whole lives now were wrapped up with him. And the only meaning of life now was to love him and look after him and try to do all the things that he needed. And so when you're saying that decade, you can be praying that you may love Jesus more and that he may 
provide the meaning to your life which it needs and that you may try to please him in the same way that our Lady in St. Joseph did. The next mystery is the presentation in the temple. And we can't do better than place ourselves with Jesus in the hands of Mary and offer ourselves through her hands to the Eternal Father. We can't do better than be like Jesus. Or the next mystery where they lose Jesus for three days and then find him in the temple. And all the time they're looking for him. They don't relax. Maybe they had relatives in Jerusalem who say, come and sit down, have a cup of tea. And they say, oh, no, we can't. We must find him. And they move on. Well, when you're young, it's quite easy to be fervent and have a great desire to please God. But it's an awful thing. When you get older, when you get to your fifties and sixties, you know, you can start taking things easy and think that there's no more effort needed. That's a terrible thing. Until we die, we have to keep trying to make efforts to be good and to please God more. And so a prayer you could make during that day it is that all your life long there may be that tension, that great desire for Jesus to please God more, to get closer to Him until finally when you die then you'll see Him in heaven. Those first five mysteries we call the joyful mysteries. The next five mysteries are the sorrowful mysteries of the Passion of our Lord. Gethsemane, and we can think of how our Lord shrank from the thought of his passion, and yet it was God's will. And we can pray that if ever we have our Gethsemane, that's to say, when instinct, the wisdom of this world, common sense even, everything seems to point one way, and God seems to point the other way, that we may do what Jesus did, pray and pray and pray and pray, until God gives us the grace to follow his will in peace. We have to follow God's holy will. It's the only way to get what we want. And then the second mystery, our Lord being scourged. And that was the most brutal thing. Every prophecy he made of the, of the passion, he always mentioned this scourging. He must have had a, a, a terrible dread of it. And when we think of that, how much he suffered for my sins, well, I should not be so soft on myself, perhaps. The third mystery, he's crowned with thorns, they spit in his face. All this to, to make up for my sins of pride. It's a very good thing to spend these minutes thinking of how much Jesus has suffered for my sins. The next mystery, he carries his cross. Maybe I show want of courage in carrying my cross. This is the time to ask him for grace to carry our cross better, because not just my salvation depends on it, but other people's. Our salvation depended on his carrying his cross all the way, right up to Calvary, and so we have to keep on doing God's holy will. Once we are sure it's God's will, even if we stumble, doesn't matter. If this cross comes us from God, then we can be quite sure we're pleasing God by going on carrying it. And then finally the crucifixion and death, we can pray that 
well, I always pray for the gift of final perseverance, because a person can serve God, you know, for years and then fall away. I pray that I, I may die on the cross, that I may be faithful to God's will right till the time I die. And then we come to the glorious mysteries, the resurrection. Well, a good thing to pray for there is interior joy, spiritual joy. Our, Lord, our Lord's heart was full of joy when he rose from the dead and was able to comfort his mother and all the others. And the heart of a Christian should be full of joy because, well, I mean, after all, who are we? We're God's children. And who's God? He runs the whole show. He's in charge of everything. And this little life here, what is it when we've got heaven waiting for us? There should be a great joy when we realize that God's running the entire universe for my benefit. And that God loves me. To realize that you're loved by God and that He's died for your sins and that He's going to do everything He can do to get you to heaven, it should give us a great joy. Well, this joy doesn't come with thinking or arguments. It's God's gift. It's a thing to pray for. And it's a thing that we need if we're going to draw other people to God. The ascension, well, there we can pray for a great longing and desire for heaven. That uh, as we get older, the thought of heaven may come into our hearts more and more. I read once of some old bishop who he was dying, and there were priests by his bed, and one of them said to him, What's it feel like when, when you realize that you're dying? And he said, I feel like a boy going home for the holidays. The next one is the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Well, a good thing to pray for is greater charity, because this is the great thing, charity. The apostles used to be bickering and quarreling with each other, or not all the time, but I mean, they, there were differences and arguments and so on. But after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we read that there were one heart and one mind, and we can ask God to give us greater charity and love towards all the other people in Christ and to the whole world. Or maybe at this mystery to pray for greater docility, obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The last two mysteries are to do with Our Lady, as where they wanted to fill up the five. And the first is the Assumption. Our Blessed Lady, who on earth was so humble and poor and... Oh, she didn't do anything that got the headlines. But when she died, well, actually, we don't know whether she did die or not. And when the Pope defined this dogma, he just said when she'd finished her earthly course. But anyhow, she was taken body and soul into heaven. And it must have been a wonderful moment in heaven when they suddenly saw this most beautiful, holy, humble mother of God come to join them. Great joy. And, well, we can have that joy that all her sufferings are over and that her heart's so full of, of gratitude to God and love when she sees her son now and she'll never lose him again. So we can ask to share that joy that the people in heaven have at seeing Our Lady. And then the last mystery, she's crowned 
by our blessed Lord. Well, this is just a sort of poetic way of looking at it. But obviously, if the mother of God turns up in heaven, the mother of God, after the Holy Trinity, she's the most important person there. And so in a poetic sort of way, we figure Christ crowning her queen. And uh, certainly, he's entrusted great things to her. And we can ask her to help us to do things for her. Good children want to help their mother. Jesus certainly loved to help his mother. It must have been the great joy of his heart. Now, she doesn't need help with the washing up, but she does need help. Those three days she was looking for Jesus. If you like, to the end of the world she's looking for her lost children. All her children who are lost in unbelief People who could be her children, but hadn't even get to, yet got to know of her son. She's looking for her last children, and if we want to please Mary, we'll help her. And that's why, with the people I receive into the church, I always tell them that they should join the Legion of Mary. That provides, in a person's life, the opportunity of regular self-sacrifice, Regular mortification. If a fire can't spread, it tends to go out. And if we don't help draw other people to God, our own love of God tends to decline. If you do have the Legion of Mary around, and if you become a Catholic, I'd recommend you to join it. It's certainly a way of getting to love Our Lady. For my part, for ten, twelve years after I became a Catholic, I couldn't get devotion to Our Lady. It all seemed so foreign. And it wasn't until after I was ordained a priest and started going to some Legion of Mary meetings that finally the thing sort of clicked and I realized what devotion to Our Lady was all about. So, if you do become a Catholic, I'd recommend you to do that. Let's go on with our catechism. Ought we frequently to read good books? Number 360. We ought frequently to read good books such as the Holy Gospels, the Lives of the Saints and other spiritual works which nourish our faith and piety and arm us against the false maxims of the world. After the Bible, that's the best book obviously, many people would say that the Imitation of Christ is the best book. It's a lovely book. I recommend you to get it. And what should you do as to your eating, drinking, sleeping and amusements? As to my eating, drinking, sleeping and amusements, I should use all these things with moderation and with a desire to please God. Say the grace before meals. Bless us, O Lord, and these your gifts, which we are about to receive from your bounty, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Bounty means, well, goodness and kindness and generosity. Say the grace after meals. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for all your benefits, who live and reign world without end. And may the souls of the faithful departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. That cross you see in the Catechism, that means you bless yourself. You make the sign of the cross on yourself. It's good to say grace before and after meals. How should you sanctify your ordinary actions and employments of the day? I should sanctify my ordinary actions and employments of the day by often raising up my heart to God whilst I'm about them and saying some short prayer to Him. What should you do when you find yourself tempted to sin? When I find myself tempted to sin, I should make the sign of the cross in my heart and call on God as earnestly as I can, saying, Lord, save me or I perish. 
there was someone I was instructing about a month ago, and he works in a hospital. And he's been sort of, he likes to have his own instruments and things, and he was telling me how he was in the hospital store, and he saw a lovely thermometer. And he thought, I just need that, really, for my own things. And then he realized that this was stealing, and he said, Lord, save me while I perish. And he said to me, it worked, I didn't take it. So it's a good thing to ask God's help when we find ourselves tempted. If you've fallen into sin, what should you do? If I've fallen into sin, I should cast myself in spirit at the feet of Christ and humbly beg his pardon by a sincere act of contrition. Before we sin, Satan always makes out it's nothing very much. After we've sinned, he always makes out that it's much, much bigger than it is. He's a liar always. And so, even after sin, we should remember that we are God's children. He loves us, so we should turn to him with confidence and say, that's me, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Help me to be good from now on. When God sends you any cross or sickness or pain, what should you say? When God sends me any cross or sickness or pain, I should say, Lord, your will be done, I take this for my sins. What prayers would you do well to say often to yourself during the day? I should do well to say often to myself during the day such prayers as, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In all things, may the most holy, the most just, and the most lovable will of God be done, praised and exalted above all for ever. O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine. Praised be Jesus Christ, praised for evermore. My Jesus mercy, Mary help. There's another prayer people like to say often. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. That's a very beautiful prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. It's called the Jesus Prayer. And the Christians in the Orthodox Church, that's their main prayer. Instead of, as we say, the Hail Mary, they say that prayer. How should you finish the day? I should finish the day by kneeling down and saying my night prayers. After your night prayers, what should you do? After my night prayers, I should observe due modesty in going to bed, occupy myself with the thoughts of death, and endeavor to compose myself to rest at the foot of the cross and give my last thoughts to my crucified Savior. A lot of people, they say their rosary in bed, and that sends them right off to sleep. But you shouldn't leave your rosary till then. It's good to say it during the day. Well, we've come now to the end of the last day and the end of the catechism. If you're not a Catholic, then, well, only God knows whether he wants you to become a Catholic. What you should do in your prayers is tell God every day that you want to please him. And we should let no worldly consideration at all stand between us and doing the will of God. We find our happiness and our peace and our self-fulfillment only in doing the holy will of God. Newman, he eventually did become a Catholic, but only after long years. But when he eventually became a Catholic, I read somewhere that he said that if he'd become a Catholic one day earlier, he would have sinned, meaning that God hadn't given him the grace then. We have to do God's holy will, whatever it is. And the way to find this, and the way to get the strength to do it, it all lies in prayer. 
So my last sort of recommendation is that you are very faithful to prayer. You can't go wrong by trying to give more time to God every day in prayer. And prayer needs spiritual reading. So read your scriptures, not to get more knowledge, but to love God more and to see better how good and how lovable God is. And then just try to spend time on your knees, adoring God, asking His help, asking Him to guide you. And He most certainly will. If there's anything you disagree with in this tape, sure, I'll be glad to try to help you. You can always write to me. Or if you want me to say something on tape, if you send me a cassette, sure, I'll, I'll try to give an answer on, on the tape for you. Or just go to any priest and, and ask you know, him to clear up any points I've said. Obviously, when I talk a lot like this, I must say things are a bit silly or leave things out. So please forgive those. But it's the same Catholic faith. And please God, I haven't said anything in all that I have said that could in any way lead you astray. God bless you always.